The Paceline Tandem talks with popular cycling writer and activist Peter Flax about where his ideas come from. I mean, that was a weird story where where I got halfway into the reporting of that piece before I even realized I was writing a story. We also get into his very personal approach to when car drivers put him in danger on his bike commute. Yeah, all the time people do stuff to me in cars and then I just catch up to them a minute later. And I love to just have them roll down the window and be like, hi, my name's Peter Flax. Do you realize that you almost killed me a minute ago? Paceline, the podcast on two wheels. I'm Eldon Fatty Nelson, here talking with Peter Flax in Tandem, episode number four. In these Tandem episodes, your Paceline hosts have free-flowing, deep-dive conversations with people doing, building, and thinking amazing things in our bike universe. Today, I'm talking with Peter Flax, the former editor-in-chief of Bicycling Magazine and current editor of The Red Bulletin. We talk about everything from bike commuting to riding to reacting to jokes that your audience just doesn't get. Maybe most importantly, we talk about the passion he is bringing to bike advocacy. I promise you it's a compelling conversation with one of the brightest minds in the world of bikes. One last thing before we begin, if you like The Paceline, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find us. Let's get right to it. Peter, welcome to The Paceline. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Thanks. Where do you come from in terms of career? Well, I've been uh, writing and editing for uh, more than 25 years, so I've been at this game for a long time, and um, most of that time has been in the magazine industry and have moved around a lot. A lot of people in the cycling space um, know me best because I was editor-in-chief of Bicycling Magazine for f- four years. Uh, so that's just one piece of... Uh, I've kind of jumped around. Like Cycling has always been a passion of mine, but I've uh, worked at a lot of magazines and a lot of different kinds of magazines and um, have been really fortunate to work with great writers who write about a lot of different things. And I, I think at this point in my life and my, my career, the breadth of talent I've worked with um, and, the, and, and di- covering different spaces within journalism have helped me a lot. What was the imprint that you left there? You know, the aspiration I had when I was at Bicycling um, that I talked with the excellent staff that was there was – you know, how we aspired to make a magazine that was as good as any magazine in any space. And it was this approach to storytelling and design and quality where, um, you know, we set out to do things at the same level that our favorite magazines in the general interest space and other top magazines would g- go after, which in cycling media is not the usual. Um you know, I mean, the reality is that bicycling was really good before I got there, and it's been really good s- since I left. But I think this kind of really um, serious approach to magazine making at that highest level is um, the thing that maybe differentiated the way I looked at it. It's got to be an almost impossible task on a monthly basis to s- still to just talk about 
riding your bike? I, you know, it, it, I guess maybe I'm in so in so deep into this space that um, <laughs> that it doesn't even seem hard. Like I could just talk about the the nuances of cycling all all day. Mm-hmm. I think people that um, know me would testify that they maybe get headaches from it sometimes. Like you know, I think whether you're teaching beginners how to get into the sport or get deeper, or talking to experienced riders about the nuances of the culture. Um, or finding stories about riding that also really are stories about the important issues in people's lives, like you know race and gender and and the economy and and the environment. Um, it feels to me as though there's like infinite stories to tell, and that one of the really liberating things about my life right now is that my my day job is not about cycling. And so I can just wake up and have a story hit me in the head and and just be able to go out and do it because there's so many stories. And that kind of gets to maybe part of why I've been finding what you've been writing really interesting lately. Maybe it's because your day job isn't about, at least not all about cycling right right now, right? Because you're doing the Red Bulletin. um, And I, I would like to find out a little bit more about that. But it seems like the choices that you are making are really in the corner, uh, the corners, I should say, of the cycling experience, right? So, uh, the favorite things that I have uh, enjoyed of your writing recently is the Thorfinn Sasquatch uh, piece that you wrote and the Lifer piece that you wrote and the Phil Guyman, uh, you know, the satire sure. piece that I kind of want to dig into a little bit more in a minute about. But I mean, all of those are at, they're hardly in the sweet spot of the typical cycling experience. What makes you pick what you are going to write about? Well, I mean, I mean, sure as hell, I'm only writing about stuff I'm interested in. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm like lucky that right now, um, you know, this is just a, a sideline gig. It's something I do mostly out of passion. I mean, I appreciate um, getting paid paid for it, but I'm making decisions to write about things I'm interested in, and a lot of this is things that I feel like nobody else is writing about. I think, um, you know, whether like the economics of publishing are impacting the kind of stories that are being told, and that you know, I'm willing to toss a weekend aside to write this 4,000 word narrative about something I'm interested in. And there's not a lot of experienced writers who are interested in cycling who are willing to do that. So I'm lucky that I'm in a place where I can make that fit into my life. Tell me how you got specifically to the Thorfinn Sas- uh, Sasquatch piece, you know, a little bit more about that just for the, you know, the folks who maybe haven't seen that one. Cause that was, I mean, that was a true like detective drama that I re- and I mean, it was incredibly gripping, uh, perhaps for, you know, as someone who, you know, loves racing, loves training, frankly, you know, loves Strava. There were a lot of a lot of pieces of that that I, you know, that overlap with my own. Experience. Right. I mean, that was a weird story where where I got halfway into the reporting of that piece before I even realized I was writing a story that, um, you, you know, I there was this guy who I saw on the road who just set off my like pro cyclist you know radar detector and this guy just I looked at him I was like oh, that guy's like a pro and who is he 
and I didn't know. And and you know, I live in LA, and I pretty much know who all the pros are that are, that are that I'm going to run into passing me on a canyon road here. And um, and then later on on Strava, I saw um, somebody who had all these incredible KOMs on many of the most famous climbs in Southern California, going by this moniker Thorfinn Sasquatch. And then I had friends that started wearing apparel from this um, company that, that made art, artisanal, made in the USA cycling kits, and it w- and 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 all these things were happening, and I didn't I didn't realize they involved the same person. And then I started putting all the pieces together, and and realizing um, that it was a you know it was a story about. Strava and about doping, but it was also really just kind of a, a a detective story of like the way sometimes as people we unravel mysteries and um and and I you know it was also a story where um there's it's not clear cut like I, one thing I've uh, that I've come away with from following cycling and pro cycling in the last ten or fifteen years is is that like there's this great urge among the public to you know have people be like superheroes or supervillains. And um, I'm really interested in, in all that gray area in between of all these, the, these people in, in cycling who are, you know, good people who've done bad things or bad people who've done good things and, and, and exploring that weird gray area. And, and that story just was all of those things. There've been other things that you've been working on that, you know, maybe while they don't have the, the sense of perhaps of investigative journalist about them, are still really you know gripping the the lifer piece you know about a semi obscure pro cyclist's uh career um how did you pick that yeah well you know bill elliston um and i lived in the same area for 15 years and so he was he's just one of those guys that if you live in a big cycling area you know he's just one of these guys that just is the king of of your region and and um but unlike all the other people in Pennsylvania that I knew who were you know kicking ass for 20 years he he was just like below the the radar you know he he was pro for a long time but not on on any super famous teams and not he wasn't the kind of guy who was winning big big races and i think i think um in his case it it was when Steve Tilford died um that i started thinking about guys like that and how they represent this piece of what's great about pro cycling that um that doesn't get a lot of ink right that that so many of the stories um are only focused on the guys who are racing in europe um the guys who are winning and um and yet these these like domestic super domestiques you, you know are really interesting and and he's been at it not for money or or for fame but for like all the reasons that that regular recreational riders still keep racing, you know, he's like that, except like a thousand times faster than us. So, um, uh, you know, he, I mean, it's like I don't even know if it came across in the story. The dude is so strong, and he's been strong for you know like thirty years. Yeah, yeah for decades. I mean, he 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 uh, he may be below the radar, but he he's you know he he could just show up at any weekly world championship ride in America and just be one of the guys destroying everyone. Those are fantastic stories for people, you know, like, you know, like me who love the, I, I guess the more hometown feel 
of the sport that you know the upper echelons of the of cycling have kind of lost a little bit of their luster and you don't seem to be doing a ton of writing about those things either and it makes me interested because you i mean you were at you were a bicycling magazine and then you were at the hollywood reporter and now you're a red bulletin your livelihood isn't happening around cycling but your life clearly is still very much around cycling and anyone who follows you on twitter can see that you're very much an activist you're you're caring very deeply about the car wrecks that are happening to cyclists constantly about the road diet stuff i'm i'm interested in the the convergence and then the separation uh, in your livelihood and cycling. You know, four years ago, even right now, I was I was the editor in chief of bicycling, and and just through like mm-hmm. corporate shit, kind of got forced out of that job, and and it came at a time where my wife and I were ready to leave Pennsylvania and, and move to LA, and I had a job that I was able to work out at the Hollywood Reporter, and you know, I was like pretty out of sorts because I felt like. But what I, I just hadn't been fully prepared to be separated from from the bike world, and and I moved out here to LA, just not sure what my next act would would be. That I you know I had like a new place to live and a new job, and still felt like I wasn't done being a part of the conversation about cycling. And you know, I honestly just didn't I didn't have a plan at all of what what it was going to turn into and I think what what happened you know I moved to LA and I I sold my car before I moved here and I just decided that like that even more than when I um uh before I lived in Pennsylvania and I worked at bicycling that I was just going to like try and you know since the weather's so good just here to just have my life revolve around the bike and and so from the start i just i just started using the bicycle as transport and and moving from like kind of this gorgeous rural area in pennsylvania to one of the largest cities in america just like gave me this entree into this world that i had known about and read about but not fully participated in and 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 i realized um that i had something to give in in that area like that that um the world of of just people using bikes as a mode of transport and and the pushback that they're facing at, in cities and and just like the crisis of safety that there um there are a lot of like advocates um working on that but not a lot of writers who um spend a lot of time covering that space um so it, it, it's 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 it all just evolved in a way where now I feel like I'm obsessed about it and it just feels like it happened naturally but it it um it certainly wasn't planned this way it, it's interesting the way you sort of drop into a groove and find that hey wow I actually do belong here I am interested though that there has been sort of a a, a re-evolution I guess you could say back into uh writing and editing about sport uh and you are very recently, what, a month, two months into Red Bulletin. Tell me, how did you wind up there and what is that? Well, I mean, I got here just because someone called me up one day and said, hey, you did you know Red Bull had a magazine? And I was like, no, actually, I, I didn't even know Red <laughs> Bull had a magazine. And um, And then it just started a conversation that lasted almost six months before 
we made wow. made the move and um so I, I have to ask, is it a printed magazine? It is. is it strictly- it's, it's, okay. it's a paper magazine. It's um, 10 issues a year. Uh, its rate base is <laughs> around 400,000, which is you know about the same size as, as bicycling. Um, That's actually a lot bigger than I thought. That then I realized I, I had no idea that it, there was a printed yeah and and it's really um you know the main topic areas for the magazine are 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 sports and adventure mm-hmm. and and music and art you know these are all the areas that the Red Bull brand invests in they they sponsor a lot of athletes in in like outdoor and adventure sports and they they sponsor a lot of the biggest music festivals that people go to in the spring and summer and so these are you know between my experience um in sports you know bicycling i worked at at runners world before that and backpacker before that and then coming from the entertainment space where i was at the hollywood reporter and occasionally contributing to our sister publication billboard it was like a lot of content areas that i'm interested in um all in in one in one place so uh it's it's pretty great. You obviously have a lot of experience both in writing and editing. I am curious, what are you going to be bringing that is either different or amplifying to uh, to Red Bulletin? Well, I think a lot of it's just magazine making, just uh, uh, maybe a level of refined writing that um, they haven't had in the past. And same with photography. Um, you know, a lot of it's just ambition of of, of again you know knowing who the best writers and photographers are and and assigning them interesting ideas and giving them the space to be creative um you know it it's like an elemental idea but uh hasn't happened here in the past and i think i'm hoping when people see those kind of stories in print that they get excited about that and and feel like that incremental amount of investment is is worth it like that's what i just think the whole magazine industry in general needs is just like there's you know it's always just they're great writers and great photographers like give them interesting assignments let them write cool stuff and and then people dig it it's not it's not rocket science but it you know publishing's in a weird <laughs> space where everyone's just so worried about their business models that um it doesn't always happen that way that kind of brings me to Something that you've been experiencing fairly recently, which is the the immediacy of electronic publishing versus the, I guess, the delayed gratification of print publishing. And I, I've spent a little time in uh, print as well as in you know as in electronic media, and something that I've been thinking about recently is the way the immediate feedback that you get and the uh, the extraordinary quantity of feedback that you get for electronic publishing when you put publish something on you know on cycling tips or in outside online uh, or in a blog that you ca- you can get thousands of comments hundreds of comments at least uh very quickly and it doesn't take it doesn't cost someone anything to leave you that kind of uh, uh, remark, you know, they can be anonymous, they can dash something off and go on with their life. Whereas uh, with print, you know, if you publish something in a magazine, or in a book, it takes a while, and it takes some effort to reply and comment. 
I was noticing in the piece that you wrote specifically uh, for um, you know, it, it was a satire piece. You wrote a rat about Phil Guyman. Um, I forget the exact title, but basically the insider's guide to hating yeah. Phil Guyman. And it was a jokey piece that basically echoed and augmented a lot of the, you know, a lot of the ridiculous comments that people have been making about Guyman. But the comments that you got back for what you wrote actually made me want to, you know, send a, send a letter to, uh, to Neil at, at cycling tips saying, you guys need to just stop allowing comments on site. Oh, I mean, I think it's, it's good to have the, the input, but I think maybe in that case, you know, I was just I, like, I think sometimes there's like a cultural disconnect. And I think that maybe, yeah. um, you know, my American way of thinking about, uh, satire just didn't play in Australia the way it might be here. But it's also like, you know, some pro cycling fans are just really earnest dudes and, and, um, and they struggle to see and appreciate the comedy that pro cycling provides us. And, and so, hmm. yeah, I'm, a, I'm okay with um, people pushing back and I'm, I'm you, you used to like, sure. sort of seems like whether I'm on social media or writing stories that, um, you know, part of it is, is, is like putting out there um, what I think and, 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 and just being prepared to hear from people who disagree with me. Um, but yeah, there, I mean, it was like some people just did not get the joke, um, which it seemed pretty obvious to me, but that's, that's life. To me, it seemed pretty funny. And for what it's worth, I actually reached out to Phil Guyman and asked him, Hey, what did you think of the joke? And, uh, Phil's response was actually pretty similar to what you noted as a preface. I think you probably put up after the fact saying, uh, guys, this is a joke, but, um, <laughs> I mean, he said, well, some of some of the punches felt like they really landed and stung because they were true. Um, but he he was like, it, it's also really on point and pretty funny. Yeah, he yeah. enjoyed it. Is, uh, is so, Some people version. thought that that like I like vetted it with him before. Uh, I think sometimes with pieces like this, people just presume that it must mean that the writer and the subject are like best buddies and that he and I were – you know, on the phone writing it together or something like that. Um, <laughs> it, it wasn't, and I could imagine that there were parts of it that, again, even if it's satire, that would hit Phil pretty hard because it is this thing that, like, you know, they're they're domestic pros that are resentful that that um, you know that he's he's aggressively self promoting himself, and there are there are mm -hmm. Europeans that feel like who's this barely pro punk you, you know you know calling out other people it's like a lot of what um i think i said even though it was meant to be a joke is still like contextualizing um the kind of scrutiny that someone like phil gets from other people does some stuff feel like you've been gut punched when you get bad feedback usually i'm a you know i've, I've just grown a thick skin i know um i don't know i wrote a piece um for outside online where i i wrote my own obituary that um one right. night you know, it must be now like a year ago i was just riding home from work and some dude in a porsche did this kind of crazy maneuver on olympic boulevard and almost creamed me and then i was like oh mm. i should like i should pre-write an obituary about my riding life because 
you don't get to do that after the fact. And I and I thought it was like a dramatic way to underscore the realities of of the urban urban cyclist and and um you know but outside's readership is quite a bit different than say cycling tips there's a lot of people who read that brand who are kind of more hunter fisher pickup truck kind of dudes and and I got like hit super hard on that piece from people who were just like you know you know you're just a dumbass like you don't you you're like <laughs> you don't understand how Darwinism works, buddy. It's like you're riding around on a bicycle in the dark in Los Angeles. Like whatever the fuck you get, you deserve it. And that you know, there's still a piece of that where um, whether it's my activism here in LA or my presence on social media or certain pieces like that to realize. The amount of of just raw hate that people have um, towards people who ride bikes, you, you know, it's like I'd be lying if that if I didn't admit that. Like sometimes that really hurts. Like it really hurts that um, yeah. th- that um, people who ride are still faced with with that. It's like it, it it's like a kind of hate that's. Um, I just think kind of impossible to process. Sometimes you just have to like know it's there and put it on a shelf somewhere and just go about your life. Your reaction, though, hasn't been to put it on a shelf. It's been to write more about it, uh, both in social media. On you know, I see you on Twitter every day, uh, talking about this, as well as elsewhere. So I, I mean, how are you, you know, separating you know, the outrage of you know people being willing to endanger other people and you know. I guess from you know the practical reality of you needing to get your normal job done, and you are creating a magazine for enthusiasts of a number of different uh, you know athletic pursuits as well as cultural pursuits. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm freed up because I um, you know since I moved to LA, whether I'm here at the Bulletin or uh, was at the Hollywood Reporter. It just doesn't like mm-hmm. that activism doesn't really enter into the pages of the magazine or the web content of those brands, and so it's just like my sideline passion. So uh, it means that you know, uh, you know what? Uh, I'm the kind of guy that gets up early in the morning, and I like I now have this ritual of you know firing up the coffee machine around five foot forty five in the morning and and reading. Google News and 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 seeing what's going on and, and just getting on Twitter and hashing it out for an hour before my kids wake up and and I write stuff in the mornings and at night and on the weekends and you, you know I just I just it's like two separate pieces of me and that I still you know have a full time job and I got to kick ass at that but um, <laughs> you know, cycling advocacy isn't a part of my day job. It's just my second job. I am interested in the process part. Uh, so are you setting aside a certain amount of time in the morning then to write and you write no matter what, or are you writing just when you have something that you would like to express? I'd say it's more the the latter and that, um, mm-hmm. You know, I I think now when I look back at the jobs I've had in the last fifteen or twenty years, they all added some piece that was important in my process. But the Hollywood Reporter was um, really important because it, it it was and is the most pressurized place I've ever worked. It's a you know it's a weekly magazine. It's a news organization that publishes twenty four seven. A lot of stuff that you get in print on Wednesday, you know, didn't get 
written and edited till Monday and then went to the printer that night. And so I just, I like got in this space where I had, you know, big important stories all the time and they just needed to get written or rewritten or edited or reconceived in just immense time pressure in a way that I never dealt with previously in my career. And that I had this, this kind of writer's block I always felt like that, mm-hmm. like just this process. It, it was like a process of just like I think about ideas, I mull it over, I play around with it, and and that sometime in the last few years, I just um, was able to push past that for the most part, and just like when I have an idea, I'm able to just sit down and bang it out. And most of what people read, you know, say in cycling tips, is um, you know, it's not like some fourth draft that. Um, I sat around with and played with over a couple of weeks. It's just like shit I banged out and um <laughs> and feel like there's a, the immediacy of that voice um feels really satisfying and interesting to me right now. So I I I tend to just like when I have an idea just to um sit down and bang it out. I I I uh, have to you yeah. know I have two kids and a a marriage and a, and a job and a dog and and so it's like I have to be flexible about it, but I also have to be kind of obsessive about it and I just like you know, might tell my family like on Saturday afternoon, like I'm, you know, I'm just going to go in the bedroom for three hours and close the door because I have something I'm going to write. And fortunately, they're cool about it. And um, and then I just take advantage of it. Are you a first draft kind of guy? Do you send them what comes out of your head, or do you write it and then come back to it and rewrite it? I, I I'm wondering how much uh, I guess revising you do before you send something off. I say somewhere in the middle. I think that that um, most of what I send in is what I would think is like a second draft. That I um, mm-hmm. I tend to just let rip a first draft, and um, hopefully for this freelance stuff, at least get a night to sleep on it and wake up the next day and look at it again. Um, and then you know I try not to make Neil at Cycling Tips miserable by like you know eight hours after I sent it in, resending in a th- third draft. It's like I I um. You know, I can always look at these pieces and start noting these sort of gem cutting things that when I was in print magazines, you know, little repetitions of words or or some thought that could add to the piece. But um, for the most part, there there's a, like a lot of immediacy to them of like how I piece together the ideas and the sentences and and um, you know, for me to make it work, I I just kind of have to let shit rip sometimes. This all kind of is leading to. A big question I've been holding off on asking, but are you working on a book? <laughs> I think I should be working on a book, but I'm I'm not. Like I'm I'm like I'm You're like not. at this point in my writing life where um you know, I'd like to write a book and I feel like I have the skill set to write a book, but I don't um I don't have a book in my head. Um or or that I um I I ha- I yeah, I, I just don't like. I, I have like ideas, and sometimes they. Um, I think like I might, but uh, you know, I wrote a story um, for cycling tips about the bike builder Tom Palermo, who was um, killed by a drunk driver who was an Episcopal bishop. Yeah, and I actually like took the step to start up a pen pal relationship with the bishop who killed him, and there was a time where I thought like, well, that's a that might be a book. There's a lot of things in my world that intersect there. It's like, you know, I'm fascinated with this advocacy stuff and and I'm and I'm also this thoughtful atheist and thought that 
there just could be something there. And then I, once I got in touch with that bishop, I was like, oh, that I just felt so filthy from hearing back from her. I didn't want to write that book. And so I'm just, I, you, right. you know, I don't, I don't know what it's like for other writers, but I feel sometimes like I'm walking around, um, you know, on some big mountain area waiting for a bolt of lightning to hit me on the head. Like I don't, <laughs> you, you know, it's not, it's not like agents are calling me with really juicy ideas that, um, you know, we have a really big advance. And so it's, uh, it hasn't worked out that way for me. If there, if there are any agents who have, um, really juicy ideas and a six figure advance, um, um, on Twitter at PFLAX1. <laughs> there you go. I'm sure that you're going to be just yeah, inundated. Sure. Tell me a little bit about the writing you do. Well, right, right now it's almost nothing but commuting or u- utility riding that, um, mm-hmm. you know, I live in Manhattan Beach, and I work now in Santa Monica. I used to work in um, the area called Mid City, but in either case, it, you know, it's like sixteen or seventeen miles um, one way to work, and so I do that. I do that ten times a week. So, and if I and if I have like a lunch date um, for work, I you know will sometimes ride three or four miles to. You know, if I have a lunch in Beverly Hills, I ride my bike and just hand it to the valet guy. So, so it's like very easy for me just to get a couple hundred miles a week. Um, just do it, yeah. you know, and most of that's like, you know, carrying a bag with, you know, a laptop and all sorts of personal product and clothes and whatever it takes. And, and, and so a lot of times now I just feel like I wake up on Saturday and both like I'm tired and I want to spend time with my family. And, and so I've just done like way less recreational riding than I have done in the last 15 years. Like a few years ago, I was, you know, every Sunday doing this like big weekly road roadie ride where, you know, there were sprints to signs and big climbs and, 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 um, I just am not doing that as much now. And, and I frankly feel okay about it. Like I, I, there's like elements of racing that I, miss but i'm really engaged in uh my commuting and transport lifestyle as a cyclist and and so i don't i feel pretty complete mm-hmm. in it but it's um so it's just different so you are getting in a solid two hours of riding uh, more than yeah more than that like two and a half hours or 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 so mm-hmm. on weekdays and and it's really la is just like this incredible place to ride it's like you know, people have this perception that the whole thing is just this endless grid of traffic. But a lot of my daily ride is along the beach on on paths, mm-hmm. and and then some of it is just this like jockeying with with buses and people futzing with their phones. Um, and and so the whole thing is like you know feel really present in my environment and 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 the city I live in. I and um, it's pretty awesome. Like I, re- I really do feel like if I had to drive to and from work every day that I would have like already had to leave Los Angeles, but, but yet I love it because of the way I experience it on my bike. So this time of year, you are doing at least, I would say what, three quarters of your riding yeah, in the dark. A, uh, certainly the ride home is always in the dark. Um, mm-hmm. and, yeah, the mornings it's usually not. You know, I don't. I'm not like that an early ariser. So, uh, yeah, it means half the Instagramming that you get in the other months. Um, but it, you know, right in the dark in LA is pretty pretty cool. I, when I when I worked at the Hollywood Reporter, 
once or twice a week, I worked like super late, like, you know, midnight, two in the morning. And so I had, you know, lot, I had like hundreds of rides in LA, you know, way after midnight. And that like, although I, mm-hmm. I, I'm not at all missing working till two in the morning that um, riding around this city when the roads are empty is pretty freaking cool too. So what are you doing to stay visible, stay safe? Um, I'm not. I'm not just talking about what you're wearing, what you're putting on your handlebars, and you know, blinky lights and so forth. But you know, actual active self defense. Uh, yeah, for I, that. you know, I think nothing that a lot of experienced cyclists um, don't don't already do. That I I do think the most important thing to do to be safe is is to you know assert yourself and just not do dumb shit. Like I, I, um, and 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 um, riding in LA, every every commute offers chances to do to take chances and and um, and to have the maturity to just not do dumb shit. You know, all all the time. You know, it's just like I have this mental discipline. You know that if 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 like a light is turning yellow, I just freaking stop every time. Like because the, the, there are people mm-hmm. that are like looking down at their phones, and then they sense the green light and they step on the gas. Um, and 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 so it's like being careful in those ways, and then in other ways, just um, you know, not getting trapped on the right margin of the road um, where somebody who's you know either not the best driver or um, makes a mistake is is going to hurt me. And so at times it's just like getting myself out there in a way where people see me and understand that I'm being forceful to take my rightful place on the road and I'm being safe by being um, aggressive. And and I think that stuff's more important than like whether I'm wearing, um, you know, lit up clothing or body paint or, you know, I mean, I have lights that are, <laughs> are like not, they're good. They're not, the, I don't, it's not like I'm, I'm not the, I see some people here in LA that like have lights where, you know, they've got like Klieg lights coming off the back of their bike or something. And it, yeah. And, and it's not at all like that. I think more of my behavior is going to um, ha- impact my safety more than anything else. And I, and I honestly, the last month or so I've been like experimenting with not wearing a helmet on my commute um, as, as just like an experiment to see how that feels um, and and it's hmm. been interesting. I like I'm I'm not sold on it, and I'm not. But uh, you know, I've the conversation about bike helmets has really been interesting to me in the last few years, and um, wanted to experience, you know, just wearing a cap and and seeing how that I- impacted my experience riding bikes around a city. Where do you think this is headed for you? What's the trajectory? More more likely to be wearing helmets, or more likely to being, I guess, more self-aware and not. I, 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 um, I think I'll wind up mostly wearing a helmet. Like I, I think my position mm-hmm. on helmets is that, like, as an individual choice, that as a rider, it makes sense for me to wear one. But I think the conversation about helmets, particularly among the non-riding part of the world, is really pissing me off. Really. Um, yeah. I'm really sensitive t- to that. Um, and so I'm just thinking about it. I, I mean, I, I, I'm aware now that like in the last few weeks when I've been wearing a helmet that it's like people give me wider berth 
when I'm not wearing a helmet, I can feel it. I can feel that people who might, you, you know, that that um, if I wear jeans with my spandex underneath them and just a cap and sit upright, people are more inclined to give me an extra foot of space. And it's like, that pisses me off too, but it's a reality that I see. And so it's like, in that case, not wearing a helmet impacts your safety on the road in ways that are hard to calculate. That is infuriating in a way, right? That There shouldn't be a distinction. I, I, I certainly have like lots of conversations with people who drive cars. I'm really not a, a yeller. I'm, I don't like banging on the sides of people's cars, but almost always in LA, if somebody does something douchebaggy to me, I'm going to catch up to them in a light in like a minute. Like driving in LA um, is not, is yeah, all the time people do stuff to me in cars and then I just catch up to them a minute later. And I love to just have them roll down the window and be like, hi, my name's Peter Flax. Like, here's my phone. Here's pictures of my 10-year-old and my 12-year-old. Like, I'm a white-collar dude biking home from work to see my family. Do you realize that you almost killed me a minute ago, that you were like, that you were looking at Instagram while you were driving down the street at 20 miles an hour and your car swerved wide and you almost hit me. And, and, and to just try and have like a moment of communication with these people and, um, and see where that, you know, where that goes. It's like a, a lot of it's spitting into the wind, but, um, you know, I talk to people all the time. Yeah, I'm interested in the spectrum of responses it's, it's that you're full, getting. So, it's a full spectrum. Let's just put it that way. Like, I definitely, <laughs> um, you know, have everything from tearful apologies to people just telling me to fuck off. It's like every everything. Yeah, um, dude, there's your book right there. <laughs> you know the the conversations with people who almost yeah, killed me. It could be. I don't. I, That's a pretty interesting book. I think there's like almost like um, you know like a. A book that's like the equivalent of Silent Spring for bike advocacy of just like something that um, yeah. calls the like the problems and the need for a, a more organized movement. Um, and I just don't know. I haven't seen that book, and I don't know if I have it in me. I think that's like a book that um, the cycling world needs. Either way, I'd read it. I'd read it. I'd review it, man. <laughs> All right. Well, that's reason enough to spend like a year of in the basement <laughs> if you'd review it. What's next on your radar? Well, I have a couple stories for cycling tips that are already like planned out. There's one um, I've written that probably by the time people listen to this, we'll have already published that's about um, – I'm sort of declaring 2017 the year I did everything perfectly that I um, – uh, this was an idea I had when I was at bicycling like five years ago where I thought I was going to do this like weekly blog and then feature story in print where I went to all these experts and all the spaces and, and got like, you know, advice on training and nutrition and aerodynamics and sleep and time management. And, and I would like take everybody's advice and see what kind of cyclist I'd became after a year. And I never did that. Hmm. And and that what I found this year is that um, just in a radically different way, just by authentically inhabiting this life of a bike commuter and being engaged in advocacy and turning off all my technology, that I felt like I had maybe the best riding life, riding year of my life. And, and so it, a piece about that you know, I'm just, I am like people who follow me know I'm like pretty obsessed right now with 
the safety issues on our streets and the stories of people who um, have been hit or 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 marginalized by the way cyclists are 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 treated and and I have a lot of big stories I want to tell um, of that kind where it's like finding people or a situation that becomes a vehicle to get at these these big issues and and it's like i just feel like um the cycling world needs to get more angry and and feel like hmm. you know i i i mean i i was in the mainstream i was the head editor of you know the largest cycling magazine in the world and i get that you know they and the biggest bike brands in the world all you know all these groups they 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 want more people riding and they want everyone to be happy and they want everyone to buy more bikes and just be, you know, like the bikes are beautiful thing and everyone wants more participation. But the reality is, you know, in the United States, the last 10 years, like 6,000 people who ride bikes have been killed by cars. It's like, we can't stay out of that fray. We got to get in that fray and, and, and no one's going to change things for the better and just give us what we want. We're going to have to fight for it and take it. And so I'm definitely engaged now in, in that yeah. way that's different than how I was a few years ago. Participation in cycling is generally pretty flat, but a big exception is um, a rise in participation in the 25 largest cities in America that um, you know a younger generation um, isn't so enamored with with cars as their solution. And, and so, you know, when you go to New York and LA and Chicago and Atlanta and Boston, all, you know, San Francisco, it's like, this is where cycling is growing. You know, there's a lot of good things happening. I don't want to like pretend like, you know, it's like, I, I just saw today that, that, um, you know, I think, you know, New York had just added like 25 or 30 miles of protected lanes for 2017. It's like infrastructure is going in. There's all these moments that seem ho hopeful and yet the system is still broken and it's just like exponentially more dangerous than it should be. And, and everybody that loves riding, even if you, you live in, in Boulder or, you, you know, or, or Emmaus or, you know, rural Utah, that, it, that it's like, you realize mm -hmm. that, that there's like people in our tribe are not safe and and if you love yeah. cycling, you know, get in the fray, get get involved because it it um it's it these are like our our brothers and sisters who are getting hit. These are people doing what we love to do, and they are in danger in all the old ways and some new new ways, right? That are as dangerous as drunk driving. You know, cycling or driving distractedness is going up with all of the demands on a driver's intention, you know, that have to do with how. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, driving around LA, it's like one of the things about being on a bike is that you're, you know, you're ex I'm exactly at the height where I can like, I pass by like a million people a day and, and, and can see yeah. what they're doing. And the amount of people that just have a smartphone either on the steering wheel or on their lap is just, and, yep. and are using it is, just mind-boggling, like half. Yep. I see, you know, LA is full of these intersections with four-way stop signs, and there's so many people that are like in a car, slowly rolling up to and through a four-way stop sign where they're like, 
on Facebook or Instagram. I can even see like what apps they're on. What's, I guess, the real tragedy is, you know, here's a couple of bike guys talking on a podcast for bike guys. Um, so who's going to hear this that right. doesn't agree with Well, that's us, why, right? I mean, I, t- I definitely like try and get up in the grill of um, those people where, where they live and yeah. um, agree that, although, you know, the, the thing is though, just to your point, is there are a ton of people in the bike space that are just not engaged on this issue. Like it doesn't impact their lives directly. And they're thinking about like the Fondo they, they want to ride or, or, or like what kind sure. of, of um, mountain bike they want to get next year. And um, I think there are a lot of people listening to this no, podcast that could be like, yeah, you know, this is something I could be a little bit more engaged on. That's actually directly and applicable to me. Um you know, as a guy who lives for, in many ways, and loves bicycles, uh, I think way more about the recreational aspect as opposed to the uh, the utility and commute and vehicular aspects of a bike. And it's something I need to do. And I think a lot of us can do it. So, yeah, thanks for that. I you are very that. welcome. Thanks so much for uh, taking the time. Look forward to reading and uh, seeing what you do next. Okay, likewise. Same to you. That's it for this episode. Big thanks to Peter Flax. Find him on Twitter at pflax1. Find me at Fat Cyclist. And, of course, find this podcast on Red Kite Prayer, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else you can find podcasts. For Patrick and Hottie, I'm Fatty. And you've been listening, and you've been listening to The Pace Line. 